I invite you to turn to the Word of God with me as it comes to us this afternoon in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, the verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, we read this passage in connection with Lord's Day 5. We're going to focus this afternoon on what Scripture teaches regarding the need for God's justice to be satisfied, and Lord's Day 5 explains that to us. So we'll read Lord's Day 5 together, page 521. Notice, by the way, that Lord's Day 5 starts the section on deliverance in the Catechism. Even though it talks about God's judgment, ultimately it is about our deliverance. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago I happened to notice a black car on the other side of the hibiscus bushes on the edge of the car park. I was sitting there with the engine running and so I went out to have a look and the driver came out and introduced himself to me as a detective. And he said he was hiding behind the bushes because he was waiting for a suspect to drive past and he didn't want to give his position away. So we had a couple of minutes and we got to chatting and I asked him if he'd ever been to church. And he said, no, uh, he doesn't go to church. He said, but he said, I am a good person. He wanted me to know that. To him, it was quite simple. The world is divided into good people and bad people. Bad people are people like the one that he was pursuing and good people were people like himself, the ones who locked them up. Now, most people think about life that way. And if you do as well, then Lord's Day 5, as we read it this afternoon, is not going to make much sense to you. It says that we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Temporal punishment is punishment in this life. Eternal punishment is punishment in the hereafter. In other words, hell. It says we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, and it says there's nothing you can do to change that. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But the catechism is simply echoing Scripture here. And Scripture tells us these things because God does not want sinners to die in their sin. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That applies not only to other people, it applies to us all. It's a question of God's justice. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All without exception. And so God's justice demands that such sin is dealt with. God demands that his justice be satisfied. And we're going to consider that thought more closely this afternoon. That God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, you can be sure that he will punish all sin completely. Therefore, you can also be sure that he has punished your sin completely. All human beings are accountable to God. God is a judge because ultimately everything belongs to him. And we sang about that, didn't we, in Psalm 24. In fact, it's the very first thing that the Bible teaches us, the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that theme is repeated in many places in Scripture, that God is the creator of all things and therefore owns all things. One of the most striking examples is in 1 Chronicles 29, where King David prayed after the people gave gifts for the building of the temple. And they gave a massive amount, 170 tons of gold, 238 tons of silver, large quantities of other materials. And yet at the end of this prayer, David says, for all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and it is all your own. 
So scripture makes it clear God is the owner of all things. And there's nothing you can give to God that was not already his to begin with. As the Apostle Paul wrote in one of his letters, what do you have that you did not receive? And that is why it makes no sense to think, as some people do, that as long as you live a good life that you will be okay. Such people might even be religious and they live as they please, but they give a little bit of religion to God. But here's the thing. God demands all of it. He demands all of us because that's his right. And that's what Jesus said as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So every commandment that God has ever given is an expression of the love that we owe him. And even if God would be satisfied with just a small effort on our part, what would we give him? Would we obey him when it came to business ethics, but not when it came to sexuality? Would we obey him when it came to the fourth commandment, but not when it came to the ninth? Who gets to decide that? It sounds very pious to be nominally religious, but it's actually a sign of profound arrogance because it means that we created beings are trying to set a limit on what we owe God. And it means that we think he should be satisfied with whatever we desire to give him. How foolish and how arrogant. How wicked to think that. As it says in Psalm 73 verse 9, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. And we dare to complain about God's justice. In Ezekiel 18, the Lord complains back to his people and he says, you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. God is not the one who is unjust. We're the ones who are unjust. Because we think, we always think, everybody thinks in the back of his mind, different rules ought to apply to me. My situation is special. This is unique, etc. But look at verse 2 of our reading. Look at what God says to that. We know, actually verse 3, we... Um, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, is verse 5. So unless God takes our sins away, we're storing up wrath for ourselves as judgment day approaches. The Catechism says that God demands that his justice be satisfied. God's justice is tied to the upholding of his law. And you might think, well, if God writes the rules, why can he not change them? Why can't he loosen up a little bit? But it doesn't work that way, and here's why. Because God's law is an expression of his character. Consider, for example, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the most basic summary of God's law. And when he says, you shall not bear false witness, for example, he's saying something about himself. He's saying, when he says, you shall not bear false witness, what he's also saying is that he loves the truth. And so if he decides to not punish sin against this commandment, he's saying that he no longer stands for truth. 
He's willing to put up with falsehood. And that can never be. If he, did, if he did not satisfy his justice, he would be untrue to himself. So God demands that his justice be satisfied. He always will. And his judgment is comprehensive. It covers every part of human life. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14 says that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul writes that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And he's writing to church members. He says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And God's judgment includes not only deeds, but also words. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Not only our words, but even our thoughts. Proverbs 15 verse 26 says that the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. In Psalm 94, the psalmist says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. And in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, David says that the Lord searches all hearts and he understands every plan and thought. So God's judgment takes every possible factor into consideration. Now, in case any of us were to doubt the thoroughness of God's judgment, all you need to do is look in the past. Consider, for example, the Genesis flood. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Think about the terrible judgment of God that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord destroyed those cities. Or think of what happened to God's own people when they disobeyed him. In Jeremiah 6, verse 19, he says, Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. And in Jeremiah 25, verse 31, it says that the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword. And you know what? You don't even need to look at the past. You can look at the present. We already live in a time of judgment. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Romans 1 verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed against people. Look at the dreadful consequences of sin that we already see in the world around us. It's, it's the hand of God weighing on human beings in judgment. And all of that judgment is building up to the final day of judgment, what the scriptures call the day of the Lord. Now, it may be that none of this resonates with you, but it should. On a very deep level, all of us want to see justice being done. We sense that something is missing when people are not brought to justice. Consider, for example, the relatively recent case of Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein was a serial sex offender who was being held in prison in New York before going to trial. But on August 10, 2019, he was found dead in his cell. So his victims were not able to testify against him. 
He was not brought to justice. He escaped punishment here on earth. But God's judgment, on the other hand, is eternal. The catechism refers to the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin. Sinners who do not repent experience wrath in hell. Now you might wonder, how can that be? How can a righteous God send people to hell? How can a single life of sin deserve an eternity of punishment? Well, the reason is that sin does not end in hell. Why not? Because there is no acknowledgement of God's justice. To acknowledge God's justice is a sign of repentance. Think, for example, of Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is acknowledging that he deserves everything that God brings to him in his life as punishment, as chastisement. And that's a fruit of repentance. That is the work of the Holy Spirit for a human being to come to that realization and to acknowledge that he deserves God's judgment. And you don't find that in hell because it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus often described hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is a sign of despair and grief, but gnashing the teeth is a sign of hatred and anger. So those who are in hell are in permanent rebellion against God. Therefore, God's justice can only ever be satisfied in a continual act of punishment. Man in hell is permanently fixed in a terminal spiral of sin and punishment. An infinitely crushing weight that will never, ever let up. That's the true horror of sin. In hell, there's no end to its corruption. The book of Isaiah is a long description of God's justice and is calling out to his people to repent. And then in the very last verse of the book, Isaiah 66, verse 24, it says that his people shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. God demands that his justice be satisfied, and you can be sure that he will punish all sin completely. There is no escape. If you're not born again, you will not escape either. Our reading makes it perfectly clear. God plays no favorites. It is not enough to be part of God's people, but to harbor an unrepentant heart. Consider what Paul wrote only a few verses before our reading. In Romans 1, verse 29 to 32, regarding those who reject God, he writes, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, even an unbeliever would acknowledge that this list of behaviors deserve some form of punishment. And now consider that we've all participated in this in some way. In a sermon on the mount, our Lord Jesus said that all these sins begin in the heart. 
And from that perspective, we're all guilty. In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And he goes on to say, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says, it's not just that you do it, it is the intent, the desire to do it, the dwelling on doing it that makes you guilty. And that doesn't change just because you're a church member. Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In fact, God's people are not even judged last. They're judged first. Look at verse 9 of our reading. It says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So it begins with God's people. And Peter echoes that in his first letter when he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Remember, God shows no partiality. That is why our reading warns us not to fall into the same trap as unbelievers do. We should not assume we'll be safe just because we happen to be part of this church. Maybe you have assumed that. Maybe you think, well, so far nothing has happened and probably nothing ever will. Verses 3 and 4 is a warning. It says, do you suppose, O men, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? To presume means to look down on something with contempt, to have little value for it. And he's talking to those who live in sin and do not take God's judgment seriously. He's saying the only reason you've escaped God's justice so far is because God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Consider the riches, he says, of his kindness and his forbearance, his, his tolerance, his patience. It's riches. It's described as riches. It's this abundance of kindness and patience that God has for sinners every day. When you think about it, he gives you so many chances. He gives us so many chances. In Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus says that his father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust and in Psalm 145, verse 9, it says that the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is so kind, dear brothers and sisters, and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And it is when we truly repent, when we turn to Christ in faith, that his justice is satisfied in our lives. Because Christ alone is the mediator and deliverer of Lord's Day 5, the one who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. Jesus Christ died for sinners. God satisfied all of his justice in him on the cross. And so when you put your faith and your trust in him, you can be absolutely sure that God's justice was satisfied for you as well. And we'll pay attention to that in our second point. Jesus Christ satisfied God's justice and he did that for sinners. Romans 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Christ died, God satisfied his justice. 
He did it to satisfy his justice, but he also did it out of love for us. Consider the words of the Canons of Dort, chapter 2, article 4 here. We ourselves, however, cannot make this satisfaction and cannot free ourselves from God's wrath. God, therefore, in his infinite mercy, has given his only begotten Son as our surety. For us or in our place, he was made sin and a curse on the cross so that he might make satisfaction on our behalf. Think about that. God, in his infinite mercy, has given his only begotten Son as our surety. Only God could have done this, and only Christ could have suffered for us. If anything less had been enough, God would have used that. You don't cut open the patient's entire body if you can remove cancer through keyhole surgery. But as Lord's Day 5 said, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. It had to be Christ. Perfection alone was not enough. Angels are perfect, but it was not an angel that went to the cross for sinners. It had to be Christ, someone who was true man and true God. And you know what? He did this voluntarily. Satisfaction was not extracted from him. God's justice, he submitted to God's justice voluntarily. And remember what we saw earlier, that sinners in hell do not submit voluntarily to God's judgment. They rebel against it. But Christ did. And that is why it is so significant that Christ suffered in silence. Even his silence is actually part of the gospel. You remember when Christ suffered silently? That's part of the gospel. The words of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to, led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That is the gospel. Because it means that he submitted to God's judgment voluntarily. He agreed that this is what sin deserves. If anyone had a right to protest, it was him, but he did not. For his payment to be perfect, it had to be delivered in complete faith and complete trust. Under all circumstances, even when he was bearing the weight of God's curse. And that was what he did. On the cross, he loved the Lord as God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and his neighbor as himself, and he never stopped for a moment, not even when he bore the full burden of God's curse. So his suffering was not marred by sin and rebellion, but it was offered up in perfect obedience. The Catechism asks the question, what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? And in the end, there can be only one answer to that question. Christ. No one else could possibly fulfill the judgment of God. The satisfaction that Christ rendered is real. He suffered God's righteous judgment on our behalf. As real as God's judgment is, so real is his forgiveness in Christ. It is only when we fully understand who Christ is and what he has done that we can understand what our reading says in verses 6 through 8. It says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul is not suggesting that there are actually two ways that you can be saved, one by grace and one by works, and then presenting those as two possible options to us. 
Apart from God's grace, we are dead in our sin. And so there's only one option, and that is God's wrath and fury. And in fact, we don't even know what these words mean, glory and honor and immortality. We don't know what they mean apart from God's revelation. To us, glory means that people notice you. Honor means that people recognize you. Immortality means that you get to play sports forever. That's what it means to us. Apart from God's grace, we're so dead, we don't even know what these words in Scripture mean. But when God's Spirit regenerates us, when we turn to Christ in saving faith, when, when He begins His work of sanctification in us, then we do understand, and then we do desire glory and honor and immortality. Then we long to be again received into God's favor. Then we not only want to be with God forever, we want to do good forever. And that begins in this life. That's why verse 8 of our reading refers to obeying the truth. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We would say that the truth is something that you accept. Paul says the truth is something you obey. You believe the gospel. That's obedience. And then the gospel transforms you. Not just in the hereafter, but now already. You don't believe in order to be, you don't do good in order to be accepted by God. You do good because you have been accepted by God, because He has transformed you, because He renews you, because He makes you a new person. So the gospel will always lead to a transformed life. If there's no transformation, no progression in sanctification, then there is no faith. But where there is faith, there is persistence in Christian living. Like verse 7 says, patience and well-doing. Persistence in Christian living. And then there's an acknowledgement of God as the awesome, blameless, just judge and avenger of sin. When you understand that, you will never say or even think, I am a good person like that detective did. And you will not see religion as an accessory to an otherwise unrepentant and self-centered life. Rather, you will begin to see how miraculous it is what the Bible teaches us. Because God demands that his justice be satisfied, but we have a way out. There is a mediator. We could have never thought of it ourselves, that God would satisfy his own justice so that he could save sinners. But he did. Amen.